As Jane told the children, we've come to the edge of the Red Sea, beginning in the 14th chapter, picking up around verse 19. And the angel of the Lord, who had been in front of the army, withdrew and went behind. And the pillar of cloud that had also been in front went behind between the Israelite and the Egyptian army. And all that night, the cloud kept it to where one side was in darkness and the other side was in light, so that the two armies did not come near each other. And then Moses uh, lifted his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back the waters with a strong east wind all night, uh, parting the waters and there was dry ground. And then the Israelites crossed the sea on the dry ground with the waters parted, a wall of water on their left and a water, wall of water on their right. And Pharaoh and his horses and chariots and horsemen pursued the Israelites and went in to the Red Sea. And then the Lord, on the last watch of the night, looked down from the pillar of cloud and threw the Egyptian army into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And then the Egyptians cried out, flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is flying fighting for them against Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. This Red Sea story is an amazing story. There's so many uh, amazing things that happen. There's that cloud uh, that travels in front and then suddenly moves behind to keep the Egyptians uh, from catching up with the Israelites and also keeping them in darkness. And then you also have this strong east wind uh, that God sends so strong that the waters of the Red Sea are parted. And just as miraculously, there, when the waters are parted, there's dry ground underneath. And the Israelites cross over under dry ground. And then, of course, uh, the water then comes back over the Egyptians who have pursued them. There are so many amazing parts to the story. Now, I know when I was in school, uh, those who tend to discount these things said, well, that's not really the Red Sea. That's the Sea of Reeds. And that the Sea of Reeds typically is not very deep, six, eight inches, maybe a foot. And that used to trouble me, but my friend and colleague Scott Hare was in Egypt four years ago. And he said, one of the great temples of Egypt, when you walk into it, it is dark. And there are all these pillars, and these pillars are painted like reeds, and it's called the Sea of Reeds. And you have to go through these pillars to light on the other side. And in this temple, you were passing in, in the darkness through the Sea of Reeds into salvation. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all that God would take a picture that the people are familiar with in Egypt and make it reality for them. Okay, you will pass through the Red Sea, through the Sea of Reeds rather, and you will find salvation. Now I know that most of the year that it's only six to eight inches of water, which to me makes it even more miraculous that the soldiers would drown in that. Uh, but there's also, uh, you've probably heard people saying, well, what happened wasn't so much Moses. It's a natural occurrence. There's combination of winds and tides that can explain the parting of the sea and the ability to cross the sea. And that may be true. But I find it amazingly coincidental that at just the moment that they stand on the brink of the sea, the winds and the tides do the thing that they naturally do on, on these rare occasions. It's an amazing story. But I'm not really here to talk to you about that this morning. I found something even more amazing than that. More amazing than the pillar 
the angel, the waters, the wind. What amazes me in the story is Pharaoh and his soldiers. I am amazed that after ten plagues, after Pharaoh had even lost his firstborn, after seeing a, a cloud that could keep him from getting to the enemy army, after seeing then that the waters had parted when he could see, and that there was a wall of water on each side, and that the ground was dry, after seeing all that, he still went in after them. I am amazed at the stupidity of Pharaoh. I'm amazed that anyone could be that stubborn that time and again you would get a sign about what God had had done and time and again you would ignore it and you would go and pursue your own plans. Utterly amazing that he would continue to repeat the same mistake. And so there's a picture for this in the Bible. It's in the 26th chapter of Proverbs, verse 11. It's a picture about people who tend to make the same mistakes over and over. And it says this, like a dog who returns to his vomit is a person who repeats their mistakes. It's a graphic picture. But this is Pharaoh. How stupid can he be? With all the evidence that he's, that he's seen of the way it's going to go, he risks everything anyway. I am amazed at his stubbornness. Absolutely amazed. But when I quit looking at Pharaoh, and all of a sudden I look in the mirror at myself, I get much less amazed. In smaller ways, in more numerous ways, I have a tendency to be stubborn and to make the same mistake over and over again. What's interesting is that Pharaoh's men don't stop until the wheels just basically are coming off the chariots. And finally, when the wheels come off, they're like, okay, we'll go back. I think of how many times in my life I've gotten to the brink of the wheels coming off. Before I've done something different or made a change. Uh, my father um, is a wonderful man, a uh, very hardworking man, a physician. But what I remember of my childhood is that he was never there. He was on call. He was delivering a baby. He was somewhere for the most significant parts of my childhood and teenage years. And so I swore that when I had kids, I wasn't going to do it like that. But several years into having children, you guessed it, I'm doing the exact same thing. Repeating that mistake. And at one point, my wife tried to talk to me about it. At another point, a a close friend tried to talk to me about it. And it was only one evening when one of my small children made the observation that I was never there. That right at the brink of the wheels coming off, that I decided to quit repeating that mistake. And then I know so many times in my life, perhaps like you, I've I've given over control of my life and and my well-being and my sense of uh, accomplishment and purpose to other people and whether they were happy or satisfied or not. And so often my life was just around if people were happy, then my life must be good. If people are unhappy, I must be bad. And time and again, I would get drawn into giving my life over to other people rather than to God and what God was asking me to do. And just at the verge of the wheels falling off, God intervened and reminded me, as I've reminded you, that the main audience in our life is an audience of one. And that's ultimately how things are evaluated and judged by what God thinks about it. But I just look and I go, Pharaoh's not so stupid after all. I've done the same things. And then I thought, well, why is it? Why is it we tend to engage in harmful behavior? 
Why is it we tend to repeat self-destructive patterns? What is it about us that leads us to do this? And, and my first theory was, well, we're just stupid. Or we're just willful. We're just sort of brutish, ignorant folks who prefer our own way to God's way. Could be. I'm reminded of a, um, the late Ed Friedman, a family systems um, uh, writer and, and counselor, who made this observation. He said, unmotivated people are notoriously impervious to insight. In other words, if, if people don't want to change, it doesn't matter what you show them or tell them, they don't seem to change. And he told that famous uh, a parable, and I, I've, I've told it to you before, about the man that decided he was dead. Really scared his family. wouldn't come out of the bedroom. They'd come in. He said, I'm dead. And so they called the pastor to come over, and the pastor visited him with quite some time. And just no progress at all. The pastor came out of the bedroom, threw up his hand, said, I'm sorry, I've, I've done all I can do. He's still dead. And so they got the idea to call the family doctor, and the family doctor came by and made a visit. Goes into the bedroom, there's a little bit of discussion, and all of a sudden we hear, ah! Family doctor comes out in a couple moments, big smile on his face, and said, I think that'll be enough of that. I think this nonsense is over. Oh, doctor, what did you do? He said, well, I just took out my scalpel and I cut him. He bled. Thank you, thank you, thank you, doctor. And the doctor went on, and so the family then rushes into the bedroom, and the dead man's sitting on the edge of the bed, bleeding. And finally he speaks, and he said, well, I was in fact wrong. I was so relieved. He said, dead men do in fact bleed. You know, there's a sense that there are people who just don't want to change and they're unmotivated to change. But I look at me, I, I know me, I know you, I don't think that's the case. Why is it then that we repeat self-destructive behavior, that we tend to want to rush headlong and into destruction, taking ourselves and other people with us? The rabbis had an explanation that I thought was helpful. They made it based on the observation of, look how many chances Pharaoh got to get it right, and he couldn't. And what they decided was the first several times, or the first at least three times that you and I uh, involve ourselves in behavior that is destructive or sinful, uh, apart from God's will, uh, that God's Spirit speaks to us about it and tries to reach us. But the rabbis concluded that after about three times, this is not their word, this is mine, we become desensitized. And after a while, enough repeating behavior, we can't hear God's voice anymore. And we're sort of left with that hardened heart to our own devices. And the rabbis concluded that we needed to make those changes when God first brings it to our attention. That's the time. Not when the wheels have come off. By then, it's too late. Jesus' brother James wrote a letter uh, to the church. And in the letter of James, he says that sin starts with the desire, then sin is birthed, and then he said after that comes death. And I think what he was saying is exactly what G they knew in Jesus' day was that oftentimes our sin sort of starts with an activity. But when it is unchecked and unhindered, it then grows and it eventually becomes our way of life, which of course is actually a way of death. thought about that and I thought, is there anything I could say to me or to you that might help us begin to get out of patterns of self-destructive behavior like Pharaoh? And my, uh, my first observation is this. For Many centuries, 
Godly people, Jews and Christians, have recommended the practice of reviewing your day. Of sitting, whether it's in the evening or it's the very next morning, looking at the last 24 hours and and looking at what went right and then looking where you went off track. And being very specific about that place where you went off track. You don't just say, well, I wasn't a very good husband today. You name exactly what you said or did and when you did it and what went on around it. You become aware. And so the first start is just to become aware so that we might begin to hear uh, God's voice on the first or the second time. The second thing uh, that I would recommend is, um, is what King David did. King David wrote in the Psalms, God, search me and try me. In your prayers, in review, give your heart and say, God, it's open. Shine your light. Show me where I'm going off course. Show me when I'm heading in to the sea before the wheels come off. Well, I can still turn around. Something powerful about opening our hearts and, and letting God inspect it. Here's what I think you'll find, by the way. God is a lot more gentle with you than your spouse will be or your family will be, or your co-workers will be. I just think that's a really good first place to start, is to invite God to look at it. Then the third uh, practice is, I think, to have trusted Christian friends. Friends who can, when you are unnecessarily down, they can encourage you and remind you that you are not the worst person in the world. And friends that, when you think way too highly of yourself, can remind you you're not the most important person in the world. Friends who can tell you the truth. Some of the most significant, important changes I've made in my own life have come as a a result of the feedback and support of people who are close to me. And then a final thought, and this comes from um, another ancient rabbi who said that if you had a bamboo pole that you were going to use in your roof or in your building and it was severely warped, what you would do is you would warp it intentionally back just as far the other direction so that it would straighten out. There's a Bible word for that. The word's called repentance. It's a 180-degree turn. And so part of my suggestion is when you catch yourself in destructive behavior, do for 48 hours or a week, whatever's most helpful, the exact opposite. So you find yourself speaking negatively about other people too often. For the next three days, try to say nothing but positive things about people. If there's something negative, just don't say it at all. You find that maybe you're not as generous as you used to be or could be. Maybe for the next two or three days or a week, every time you come up to an intersection and somebody wants money, even if it's against your better judgment, you give them some. You find ways to to oversteer, to overcorrect that habit while you still can. You see, because what we learn from Pharaoh is what's at stake is not just Pharaoh's own heart. What's at stake is Pharaoh's entire nation and people. Scott, make, Scott Hare makes the point, and I think he's accurate, that if you look at Egypt following the Exodus, its influence is never the same in the world. Internationally, it's still a power of sorts. But watch Cleopatra, a thousand years later, how desperate she is to make maneuvers because of all that Egypt has lost. He didn't just take down himself. He took down everyone around him by stubbornly pursuing his self-destructive behavior into the sea. There's a lot at stake about getting our lives not perfect, but at least getting them right with the power and support 
of God. There was a man, a spiritual leader, some centuries ago traveling, and one night uh, a, a man who worked with wood took him into his home. But the man kept working by candlelight up until like 10 o'clock at night. So finally the spiritual leader said, you know, it's getting late. Aren't you going to stop? And he said, as long as the candle is burning, I can work. And the spiritual leader thought about that as a metaphor. If we're still alive, our candle is burning. And while the candle is burning, it is not too late. The wheels have not yet come off. We can make the change with God's help. We can turn around. We can go a different direction. Because remember this about our God. Remember this about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is much less interested in who we have been than who we may yet become in his sight. You're here. Your candle's still burning. The wheels have not come off. It's not too late.